Welcome to the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. Join RJ and Dylan as they discuss each week's Seattle Kraken news and top stories from around the league. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. So we've hit the midway point of August, kind of the dog days of the offseason, but there's still plenty of Kraken things to talk about. But before we get into the Kraken news, I have a little thought experiment for you, Dylan. So this is, of course, a hockey podcast, but we are both football fans, and we did watch some preseason football this weekend. And it got me thinking, which Seahawks player would you want to see play hockey? So if the skill set translated over, you have to use your imagination a bit with this one. Like, who would be your pick from the Seahawks that you'd like to see play hockey if the skills moved over? Um, not knowing exactly which skills translate to what. Uh, you got to use I, your imagination I here. know, I know. Um, I'm going to still go ahead and say Bobby Wagner. I just think the, the size-speed combination in addition to his smarts. Uh, I, you know, I always want smart hockey players. I want guys with high hockey IQs. Bobby Wagner has super high football IQ. I think that translates pretty easily over to hockey. And I just think his ability to, you know, kind of roam around the defensive zone, hit guys, punish them, be smart about it, you know, takeaways, all that kind of stuff. I, I just think all that stuff translates to being a, a really solid defenseman in the NHL. That's a good pick, and I, I like you going with someone from the defense. Uh, I was thinking a little more from the offense. As much as it might be cool to see kind of Russell Wilson as you know a smaller center distributor, maybe like a uh, like a Sidney Crosby type, I got to go with DK Metcalf, just because of that combination of athleticism, size, and skill. I think you might see something that you haven't really got in the NHL since like the Eric Lindros days in his prime, just as a power forward and and what he could do. So uh, DK Metcalf would be my pick. Yeah, you know, I, I just worry about his height. I guess we're starting to see taller NHL players. It's not like the old days of like hip checks all over the place where somebody that tall is like almost a liability at times. You know, Rob Blake yeah. was just going to come out of nowhere and hip check you into oblivion and take out both your knees. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that he would be the best player, you know, if it moved over, but I, I would like to see it. He's the one I would most like to see. Yeah, no, Just for sure. What it would look like, for sure. Yeah, no, it would it would definitely be be fun to watch. All right. So, onto the hockey now. And I want to start with something that we've been encouraged by multiple listeners to talk about, and that is the idea of the Kraken offer sheeting Elias Pettersson. So, essentially trying to poach their biggest rival's number 1 center before ever playing a game. And it would be one of the craziest things to happen in the NHL in a while if the Kraken were actually able to pull it off. So let's forget about whether it's a wise thing to do or not. Well, you know, we'll get to that. But to start, would it even be possible? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't think of a reason not to, right? Kraken have the cap space to do it. All you got to do is make him an offer. Vancouver would have a set amount of time, I forget exactly how long, to match it. And if they don't match it, um, Seattle gets Pedersen. And then based on how much the offer sheet was signed for, what the AAV was, the Kraken would just have to send Vancouver some uh, draft compensation. Right. So uh, a little bit more on that, how it works. Essentially, the Kraken would have to 
offer Elias Pettersson, you know, an offer sheet, a contract that he would he would have to then sign. So that's the big part that, you know, I don't know because Pettersson would have to sign the offer sheet, knowing that whatever happened from that point on, he would be hated in Vancouver forever. So that's that's an element there because if the Canucks match, then. You know, we know how the Canucks fan base can be. I don't think he would be all that popular for having done that. And then, of course, if the Canucks don't match, then, you know, all of a sudden he's gone to their biggest rival. And, well, I mean, you know how that would turn out. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly kind of like a a no-win situation for him in that sense. Um, I guess the the win is that, you know, he's actually, he's getting a contract that's probably going to pay him fairly well. And, um you know, if he's okay with, with dealing with some of that, then it's, then it's all right for him. I mean, we've seen kind of that just this past week, right? He gave an interview over in Sweden and basically talked about how, regardless of how this upcoming contract goes in the future, he was kind of asked about whether or not he'd want to ever leave Vancouver in free agency or something. And he basically said, you know, he just wants to go to whatever team he feels like he can win on. And, and, you know, I don't know if it was the translation or, or kind of just the, a poor choice of words, but it, it very much came across as, you know, if it, I, I don't necessarily feel like Vancouver's the place I can win with, you know what I mean? And, and so that sparked a lot of, uh, a lot of noise from the Vancouver faithful. For sure. And I don't have a problem with saying, you know, you want to be on a winning team. I think that's what every player should aspire to. And given Canucks management recently, uh, it's fair to question whether the Canucks would be that team. Um, you know, and there were, you know, there were some rumblings about, you know, well, what would his interest be? And in maybe going to Seattle, there was a, a funny picture that kind of circulated on Twitter of uh, him holding a book from his, an Instagram post that he made. He was holding a book and uh, there was a Photoshop of it uh, that said, you know, 10 things to do in Seattle or whatever it is. Um, and he said, I can't believe this day has come or something. And of course, that was a Photoshop. By the way, a little PSA for uh, Kraken fans. If you're on Twitter and you see a Twitter account, Mr. Booth. Uh, if you see any tweets by him, know two things. One, he's a Canucks fan, and two, he is trolling you. Um, <laughs> he's the one who circulated that. And it was really funny. It's it's a funny account. But, uh, of course, you always got to be wary because it's probably not true, anything that he's uh, putting out there. So, anyway, it gets to the heart of the matter, and that is his willingness to leave because you have to convince him to sign that offer sheet. And, ultimately, you have to give him a raise over what he would get with Vancouver that he thinks is worth it. And when you're doing that, you get to this kind of critical threshold given the offer sheet compensation. So as you mentioned, depending on the amount of the AAV of the offer sheet, there's different levels of compensation that would go back to Vancouver if they chose not to match. And the level where it bumps up uh, at what we're talking about for Pedersen is a little over 10.2 million. It's 10,276,000 and change. So below that, let's say you sign him for 10.2 million AAV. The compensation going back to Vancouver is two first round picks, a second round pick, and a third round pick. So two firsts, a second, and a third. Anything above that, the compensation going back to Vancouver is four first round picks. So that is a lot. So Dylan, do you think that there'd be any kind of chance of one, him accepting Pedersen accepting the offer sheet and two Vancouver, not matching it. If you go in under that. So let's say 
10.2 million AAV. What do you think the outlook looks like there? Um, I could see him accepting that if, you know, not knowing how he feels, not knowing what his relationship with the team is at the current moment, how negotiations are going, all of that stuff, right? Thought experiment time. Uh, why, why wouldn't you sign a deal for 10.2 if you're him, right? That, that instantly puts you among the elite centermen in the NHL. That's, you know, it's a ton of money each year. Um, I don't see Vancouver willingly giving him that much. So if, if financial security is what he's after, I 100% believe he would sign that deal. Um, you know, you're basically saying that you're up there with, you know, any of the top centermen, right? I mean, obviously McDavid sets the bar up at, you know, close to 13 or whatever, but below that, there's not a lot of guys that are in that double digit figure. So, um, you know, you're, you're saying you're, you're making more than Nikita Kucherov at that point. Obviously, Kucherov probably took a hometown discount in Tampa <laughs> Bay. But, but it, you know, it shows, like, the level of people that a team is valuing you at, right? Which I don't think Vancouver is doing. So that would be attractive, I would assume, to Pedersen if, if Seattle's saying, look, we believe you're, you know, a top five centerman in the NHL. That's, that's huge. Just that belief in you, the, the willingness of a franchise to put that financial security behind you all of that stuff. So um, I think he would sign something like that. And I think it would be extremely difficult for Vancouver to match such an offer. You know, we were just looking at their cap situation. Um, once Michael Furland goes on long-term IR, once, once that all gets going towards the start of the season, they're going to have like 14 million in cap space. And so if all of a sudden you got to take up 10.2 of that with Pedersen, well, that's fine. You have the cap space, but wait, you still have to sign Quinn Hughes. And I don't think Quinn Hughes is going to sign a deal for, you know, $4 million a year. Like, I don't see that happening. So um, I think I think that would be kind of a sweet spot for Seattle if they were to do this, where you're, you're, you're not losing too much draft capital to get a top center. You're making it impossible for Vancouver to match, and you're getting yeah, you know, a, a, a really good player. Yeah, I, I do disagree with you about whether they would match. I think they would just because you can't afford to lose a player like Pedersen for that kind of compensation. Four firsts, you can think about it, but for that compensation, you can't afford to do it. I think you just have to match and then worry about what else you can do, whether it's trading Brock Besser or doing something to open up the space. Uh, there's been rumors that they've looked into trading Besser anyway for cap reasons. Uh, I think there's easier ways to get out of that without losing your franchise center. I do think you would have to go above that threshold. And then let's say you're talking above that. Let's say you're trying to do an offer that Vancouver just really couldn't match. Let's talk 11 and a half. Do you think, do you think uh, Vancouver would match that? Well, if, if in your, no, probably not because four first round picks for any player is so much, right? I, I think the only guys you turn that away for are guys that are absolutely proven to be top-notch players. You know, uh, a Crosby in his prime, McDavid right now. Like, like I, I got to think if, if Edmonton was offered four firsts for Dreisaitl right now, they would at least think about it, right? They mm -hmm. might not do it, but I think it would be something that they'd think about for a moment just because that's, that's so much. Granted, the four firsts are spread out over four years. It's not like you're getting them all at once and you get to raise this crop of guys all together and 
they can all come in at one time and really, you know, make your team great. But um, I, I, w I do think Vancouver would think about that uh, just because, it, I mean, it's Jim Benning. Everything's on the table, right? Right. Um, so, but I, I do think that the off would probably have to come in at over $11 million just for the combination of one to give the Canucks a chance to not match it. And two, to entice Pedersen that it's enough of a raise that, that he's comfortable doing that and taking such a step, you know, for the chance that Vancouver does match it. And then all of a sudden you're left in this awkward position. And now, you know, for the next five, six years, whatever it is, you're probably the guy who's to be blamed for the Canucks failures, even if it's not your fault at all, because you took too much money and you didn't leave enough for the, t for Jim Benning to go waste on other things. Um, but it's a tough calculation in his head. So we've gone into basically whether it's possible. Now on the Kraken end of it, do you think it's a wise decision for Seattle to do it? And we'll start with, let's say, the $10.2 million offer uh, with that first bit of compensation, two firsts, a second, and a third. Would that be wise for Seattle to do? I'm really kind of 50-50 on that. I, I guess I lean towards no just because, um, you know, as I was saying, that puts him kind of in the top five center, you know, talk as far as how much money he's making, how much money you're committing to him as a player. And I don't know that he's, you know, entirely proven that yet. Um, you know, it, it, it felt like he took a step backwards last season, but if you look at it statistically, he, he really didn't. He's been, you know, remarkably consistent his first three years in the league. Um, I, I just... I don't know. It's so much. It's so much money to be committing to one player for sure. Like you have to be totally sold that he's going to be your number one franchise center for the next seven or eight years, um, and and then to also give up the draft capital. And that's that's where maybe if it was if if Seattle was further along in their history, I would I would be more okay with it. Because yes, it's only two firsts, the second and a third for you know a, a top center, which isn't isn't ridiculous. But when your your prospect pool as a franchise is literally one draft class deep that that's a lot to be saying you're basically saying look we're not going to we're not going to have a prospect pool until you know year four or five of our franchise where we're going to have uh good young players that are on cheap entry-level deals that we're going to be able to come up and and you know fill out our roster with as we compete for a stanley cup so uh, for for that reason alone, I would I would say I don't necessarily want Seattle to do it, um, but but if they were to do it, it would have to be under that ten point two because giving up the four first rounders, I just don't think he's worth it, and I don't think it would make sense for a team uh, as young as the Kraken. Yeah, I think you hit on it with the uh, draft class thing and talking about the Kraken's prospect pool. For some other teams, it might make sense that are kind of further along. and But the Kraken probably have the shallowest prospect pool in the entire NHL. And that's just by virtue of having only one draft class. That's just a given. They only have the seven picks from their draft class and then like Luke Henman sign. So I don't think they're in a position to give up that kind of draft capital. And like you said, there's not going to be enough young guys on entry-level deals coming up through the ranks when they're going to need them in that window with Pedersen coming up, you'd have to trust that your Stanley cup window is now is like right now to like three years from now, it'd be immediate. And I don't know that that's the case. Um, certainly with the four first round picks, I think that would be out of the question for me. 
uh, with the Kraken. But uh, that 10.2 million spot, it'd be an interesting gamble because maybe you could try and get those draft picks back, moving other things, and you figure even if the Canucks do match, which I think they would, it puts them in a tough spot then as far as what they have to do cap-wise. It's the kind of move that isn't really done in the NHL because of this gentleman's agreement among GMs. Uh, but, you know, maybe it should be done more. But I don't think Ron Francis is really the guy to do it either. <laughs> we saw at the expansion draft, he was kind of hesitant to use that leverage. I think he was trying to be friendly with everyone. He seems like maybe one of the last GMs you would expect to do something like this. It would definitely be an out-of-character move if Ron Francis was to do it. You and I have kind of been saying for years, just talking amongst ourselves, that we do think more teams should do this kind of stuff. Um, because the bottom line is, look, I, I know it's that whole like, well, this could come back to bite me later, but we've, we've seen it more and more, especially of late, you know, GMs are willing to, to make questionable decisions knowing that their job security is very thin, right? From the moment they're hired, you're already on the hot seat, basically, uh, for most franchises. So um, we've, we've seen GMs make questionable moves for the future uh, just because they, you know, they figure, look, if I'm around, then great, I'll deal with it. But, you know, kind of, unless we're winning a Stanley Cup, maybe I won't be. So I think I think GMs are going to start, should start more and more doing RFA things, try to screw over a rival team while getting a good player. Uh, I think the compensation stuff is very fair um, or beneficial to a team to sign someone to an offer sheet. Like we're saying, you're signing a guy to make him a high, you know one of the highest paid players in the NHL, and you're only going to have to lose two firsts, a second, and a third. Like that's that's very fair value to acquire a young player because that's the other thing. They're all under 27 because they're RFAs. It's not like they're old. You're getting them squarely in their in their prime. Um, so I think more teams should do it for sure. And you know forget the forget the consequences because you might not be around to see them anyway there you go that's that's a good note <laughs> to end it on um and it would be interesting to see Pedersen in a kraken jersey uh, for that home opener on october 23rd uh that'd be crazy story for that of course now we know the home opener will be at 7 p.m local time pacific time because the nhl released start times for the entire 2021-22 schedule, uh, which means we now have the fully complete Kraken schedule uh, with all the start times and everything. Uh, there's not a ton of note for the Kraken there as far as the start times. Most home games, 34 of the 41, will start at 7 p.m. There are five Sunday games, all of them starting at 6 p.m., and then a 4 p.m. start, uh, Sunday start in April, and uh, no, I think it's a Saturday start in April, and then a 2 p.m. start on Martin Luther King Day in January. Um, I guess the biggest abnormality on the start time schedule is probably the lack of weekend matinee games. Usually the league kind of tries to sprinkle in a few afternoon starts on the weekend, but none for the crack in this season. Yeah, that's a, that's a little odd, especially, you know, given it's the team's first season. You, you kind of want to play around with... I would think the NHL would want to play around with the schedule, make it as accessible to as many new fans as possible. Um, I, you know, I always know the, the kind of matinee games on the weekends are, are a lot of fun to go to because, you know, you don't have to worry about staying out too late, especially if it's a midweek game and you got to worry about work or school or something the next day. Um, 
But, you know, I, I also just think, you know, it's it's the way it is. And I don't know if they're just, you know, trying to make it feel a little more premium or special because it's the first, you know, season for the team, right? So it's all prime time. They want to make sure they're maximizing the um, the television deals and stuff that are going to be associated with the Kraken and everything. Uh, all that stuff always complicates this sort of thing. So my guess is there's a reason for that behind the scenes that we're just not aware of. That's a good point. I hadn't considered the TV angle, and I think you're right. Keeping it in prime time probably helps uh, TV-wise. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see when the first weekend matinee game is. It won't be this season, but uh, those are fun to go to, as you mentioned. It's a good thing for the family, too. If you have kids, you're not out too late. Uh, it's just a fun atmosphere, and it's it's a little different. Mm -hmm. So the Kraken also made two hires uh, last week, bringing in a couple additions to their coaching staff. And the first one is Dan Bilesma. Uh, he's a 2009 Stanley Cup winning head coach, of course. Uh, and the Kraken are hiring him to be the assistant coach for their AHL affiliate in Charlotte. So as part of that agreement, the affiliation agreement, they're splitting that team with the Florida Panthers. The Panthers will provide the head coach while the Kraken will send an assistant coach. And so now we know that will be Bilesma. So Dylan, I'm particularly interested to hear your thoughts on Bilesma. As we've covered before, you grew up a Penguins fan. So you were pretty closely following Bilesma in his time when he was the Penguins head coach. What do you think of this hire? Yeah, so I really like it if... Um you know, he's going to really mostly be working with the AHL team. He obviously he was a very good AHL coach in the Penguins system, uh, and that carried over with a lot of the guys on the Penguins team while he was there. Obviously, his track record with the Penguins was fantastic in the regular season. Not so great come playoff time, as they never made it past the second round outside of his first season when they did win the Stanley Cup. Um, as far as, like, coaching style and stuff, you know, he ran into some issues at times with like the power play. He could never like the power play was great because of the players that were on it, but I never felt that his systems really worked out great on it. Um, I think, you know, he, he has good transitional stuff. If you have a, a really good offensive team, as far as moving the puck out of the zone and, and getting it up to those forwards and stuff. But again, it's, it's really hard to judge a guy based off of the performance when you have Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, all those guys mm -hmm. running, running the team for you. You know, Jordan Stahl was still there while he was there those first couple seasons. So um, I, I like him as an AHL coach. I would assume this means, you know, next year he's going to be the head coach for the Kraken's AHL affiliate once they come over uh, and they start playing in Palm Springs. I would assume that's part of this agreement because otherwise it seemed, you know, he has a resume that's too good to just be an assistant AHL coach, in my opinion. For sure. Um, but yeah, as far as like hallmarks of his of his coaching, he's a he's a player development guy. He he gets guys ready for the NHL. Number one thing you can say about him is he builds confidence in players. I don't think anybody would say that he doesn't. Um, he did a fantastic job with all the depth rotational guys that they had in Pittsburgh, right? He, whether it was developing them in Wilkes-Barre Scranton or working with them once they were in Pittsburgh, I, I just thought he did a, a great job with those guys, having them play at high levels to, you know, work with 
all the star players that the Penguins had. Um, I, I think he'll do that in Charlotte and then potentially eventually in Palm Springs as well. So I, I'm excited by it. He's a great coach. Track record speaks for itself. Yes, he had those two kind of 500 years in Buffalo, but really if you look at if you look at Buffalo the last decade or so, that's not too bad actually. <laughs> to be able to walk out of there with a 500 record is pretty pretty good. So um, I'm excited for it, and and you know I think he gets a bad rap just because you know they were so unsuccessful in the playoffs, the Penguins all of those years. But the bottom line is it's it's hard to be consistently good in the playoffs, and you know. He is, he's a guy who was let go of a job at coming off of a 51-win season. Like, there's not a lot of guys that can say that. And and I don't think it was because, you know, he's a bad guy or anything like that. So uh, he was just, you know, a, a product of super high expectations. And, and it's hard to live up to those sometimes. Yeah, and on the Buffalo curve, you know, that's, that's pretty good getting out of the 500 record. And I like the fit as far as uh, him just... Being someone, like you said, who can give the players confidence. Uh, and he's kind of been that way for a while. I mean, my first uh, exposure to Bilesma, you know, the first I had heard of him was when I was nine years old. My parents bought me uh, his book that he that he wrote with his brother Jay. It's called So You Want to Play in the NHL, A Guide for Young Players. And I read that book as a nine-year-old, and it really helped me out as kind of a young hockey player understanding the importance of bringing value to a team in ways other than scoring goals. And that book single-handedly got me excited about playing on the penalty kill as a score hockey player, um, which was pretty cool. And so he's definitely had that teaching mindset for a while. It's kind of a natural place for him. And so I really like this fit uh, in the AHL with the Kraken and their young players. So Bilesbo wasn't the only hire the Kraken made. Uh, they announced them both together. They also hired Andrew Allen, to be their goaltending coach. So Allen was with the organization already as a pro scout, scouting goalies in preparation for the expansion draft and such. But he does have a goaltending coach background before that. Uh, he was with the Rockford Ice Hogs for a few years before going on to be the goaltending coach for the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, he's worked with a number of NHL goalies. Uh, with the Ice Hogs, he worked with Carter Hutton, Auntie Ranta, Scott Darling, uh, plus at the tail end of their careers, Michael Layton and Jason LaBarbera. And with the Buffalo Sabres, he worked with Robin Leonard, Carter Hutton again, and his probably biggest success story, Linus Allmark, who he worked with kind of coming up as a young goalie through the AHL and finding a place in the NHL and now signing with the Boston Bruins uh, for a big contract this offseason as a free agent. What do you think of this hire, Dylan? Yeah, it, it seems pretty solid. Um, somebody the Kraken already know. Obviously, as far as pro scouting goes for, for them this year, you know, he was instrumental in helping them bring aboard uh, Drieger, going after Philip Grubauer for agency, uh, at, you know, for the short amount of time they had him, Vonacek, uh, Joey DeCord, who we talked about during our latest video about the projected lineup, about how he's a really good you know, young goaltender that's just unfortunately going to have to be stuck in the AHL this year for the Kraken. Um, he, you know, he's, he seems to know what he's talking about as far as a talent evaluation standpoint, team's comfortable with him because of that, you know, bring, bring him in as the, as the goaltending coach. Like you said, the stuff he did with Linus Olmark was, you know, really, really good considering again, you're talking about another Buffalo guy 
which, yes, maybe there's some concerns about the amount of Buffalo people they've brought in both front office and coaching-wise, but, you know, Linus Allmark, the last thing you were talking about with Buffalo these last, like, five or six years when it came to them and, and their struggles was goaltending, right? Like, that that hasn't been the the focal point of all of the criticism that's been levied that way. So um, I don't, I don't think it's much of a concern. Yeah. And I don't know if this was the plan all along to bring him in as the goalie coach, you know, once you have him as a pro scout, I don't know that, but if it was, I do like that idea. Basically have your goalie coach who's going to be coaching these goalies acting as a pro scout and, kind of scouting out for you which goalies he would like to end up coaching. Uh, so th there's nothing from the Kraken that's confirmed that that's the plan. I suspect it might have been. Uh, but if it is, I do like that idea. Yeah, no, I think that would be a fantastic way of going about it. Um, I certainly think that that could have been. It's not like this is, you know, oh, the season's about to start and they didn't have a goalie coach. Oh, let's grab the guy from the, you know, the scouting room that has some experience doing it, right? Like, this is this is the time where teams are filling out their coaching staffs and all of that kind of stuff. You know, they got to focus on the draft first. They got to focus on free agency. All these kind of coaching hires always tend to trickle in in the early parts of August. So uh, I do think that there's a good chance that when they brought him in last year to be a pro scout for them, that they knew that this was a, a possibility for him. Speaking of acquisitions that trickle in uh, toward the middle of August, the Kraken have a couple more RFA signings that they made, uh, just taking care of the last bit of business with these RFAs. And that is Carson Twarinski and Kale Fleury. They both signed one-year deals at the league minimum, $750,000. Uh, any thoughts on these signings? No, I mean, I think most likely they're going to be in the AHL this year, at least to start the season. Um, like you said, you're talking league minimum deals, so it's... Uh... They're, they're good depth guys to have, but I don't know what how much of a role they're going to have on the, the main roster come October. Right, and looking at the two of them, I mean, it's interesting, though, that they will both have to pass through waivers if they want to go down to the AHL. Uh, neither of them are waivers exempt anymore. So it'll be interesting to see whether they can kind of cling on to those roster spots or, or whether they look like more AHLers, and in which case, you know, would any team pick them up? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm pretty sure Kale Fleury's already gone through all that, though, right? It's, Cap Friendly has him uh, on the non-roster as an AHL as a minor player, but I know with this deal in this season, he is not waivers exempt. So that might be if they want to bring him up. I got to look into that actually a little bit more. Um, but I know that he is. Uh, that he is not waivers exempt anymore starting this season. So it might be that if they want to bring him up, he might be able to start in the AHL, but I will look into that. Yeah, so with Fleury, it seems like the, all the confusion is around, yeah, whether or not he's already been assigned to the AHL given he played all of last year in the AHL. So there is there is some confusion online as to, you know, what what roster he's on right now. If if for some reason he stays in the AHL because he was already there for Montreal, then yes, he would he would only have to clear waivers if Seattle called him up and then decided to send him down. If, as a lot of people think, he's he's you know he's part of the Kraken's active roster right now during the off season because of the expansion draft, then yes, odds are the Kraken are not going to waive him knowing 
someone would pick him up in waivers. So, um, you know, as as the Kraken have to move out defensemen to make room for guys such as Kale Fleury, you know, my guess is he would stay on the team because they wouldn't want to risk losing him in waivers for nothing. But yeah, it's an interesting situation. Obviously, expansions like this don't come around very often, so there's plenty of interesting uh, situations such as this. Yeah, that is perfect. The waiver technicality is the perfect way to close it out uh, for a mid-August podcast. Uh, gotta love it. So that's all for this episode of the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you next week.